So we talked about God. Yes. <laughs> Chapter one. What did y'all think of it? What was like some takeaways? Some like the quotes. Agree or disagree? Well, the very first line of the book. <coughs> Discipline without direction is treasure. Yes. I put the book. As soon as I read that, I just put the book down. I was like, I'm done. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. It applies to everything and anything. I, and then we got to the piano part. I was like, that was me. I my mom forced me to do that, and I didn't like that. <laughs> so I'm gonna call, fix all your problems, people. Um, especially when it comes to reading your Bible. If you just say, I need to do this every day, every day, and you don't have a specific goal. Some people I know are working to memorize entire books. Um, but just something like that, whether it's memorizing certain parts of scripture or just, like for me, it has been a really long time since I had gone through like a book, chapter to chapter to chapter. I jumped around so much. And so a big goal of mine coming off of this was like reading through all of Matthew and I'm almost done with that. So. Nice. Yeah. Other people. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. Anyone else have? Yes, Julia. Um, so on what you just said, we were talking about the idea of what produces the excitement to, you know, put in practice those spiritual disciplines. And one of the things that we talked about is just work on seeing the benefits in it. Um, a lot of times we don't want to do things because we don't see, like, well, like what's the point of doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that we talked about was like struggles of seeing like what's the point in holiness like if I read my bible like where is that going to take me what am I going to get from that type of idea so working on seeing um, the values and the benefits that can come from those disciplines Mm -hmm. can be very helpful in finding excitement in them Um, another thing we talked about is just the idea of rewards connecting to that um, personally, one struggle that I talked about was in asking, like, what's the point of holiness? It's like, I feel like I'm never, like, I'm never going to be like Jesus anyway. So it's kind of like, what's the point of doing all that yeah. if I'm never going to achieve perfection? It's just like failing again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And it sucks. So that's like something that's really hard personally for me. And that's kind of what we talked about in that specific area. Yeah. Sure. These groups over here have anything for chapter one? <laughs> um, we really like the imagery of um, the boy playing the piano yeah. and seeing himself in the future. I think that it's really helpful to to think about where we would want to be and like create goals off of that and um, yeah. like surround ourselves with people that are maybe more mature spiritually. I'd say in a lot of cases it can be intimidating to start these disciplines just because we're like, oh, we haven't done it so far, and for the most part it's okay, or just all of it at once, just kind of being overwhelming and not Mm -hmm. just taking a step into it, you know, slowly wading into it.
think the one thing, going back to what he was saying, the being intimidated to, like, to start everything. Like, when you start at the gym, like, you don't, you're not, like, lifting all the things. Like, you're, like, doing very simple exercises. So, like, don't focus on doing everything amazing or perfectly because you're not going to be able to. That's not sustainable. Um, but try to do a little of each every day, and then that can grow into something that's a lot better. And, and in, in the future, you're going to be looking back and be like, wow, I never could have seen myself be here. Chapter two, where are, where are you guys at with intake of scripture? Biblical intake. What, what do y'all think? Hayden? Uh, well, I was going to say for, just really quick. For yeah, totally. Just the quote, the job of football coach is to make men do what they don't want to in order to achieve what they've always wanted to be. And like, um, just a reminder that this is actually about what gets the flesh and it will always be because um, it's tempting to see the struggle to actually want these disciplines as like shouldn't I naturally just always be thirsting after scripture and being super passionate and always doing these things already when that's not really realistic because it is always about what gets the flesh Mm -hmm. so as long as we're in the flesh, it, it, it will be a struggle to make time for these things and to focus on them and get better at them. And so, despite the you know professed super Christians around, or you know those pastors that are like, when I was first saved, I read the Bible ten hours a day. You know, it's like, okay, that's cool, but again, we're in the flesh, and so that's just not always going to be sustainable. That's not a thing that we're always going to be yeah. thirsting after. So it's it's not bad. We can say it. Okay, so this is page 16. Um, it's a quote um, on the last paragraph. It says, um, Coleridge had every poetic gift but one, the gift of sustained and concentrated effort. Um, one thing that we talked about is how gifts are nothing without application. And like, what's the point of idea if you're 
you're not going to put them into practice. Mm -hmm. I think that it's really easy, and like for me, and I would say for most people, to whenever there's something that you're naturally gifted in, you're just kind of like, I'm already so good at this, like what's the point of putting like extra, extra effort into it because it just comes yeah. so naturally. So we tend to like put it aside and not, you know, make something out of it. So it was just like a good reminder, I guess, to read that and be like, hey, your gift, you have your gifts for a reason, like yeah. put them into practice, make something out of them. Caleb. Chapter two. Chapter, hey. <laughs> <laughs> My man. So when, I think this is a quote, um, I just put fact. <laughs> when scripture is stored in your mind, it is available for the Holy Spirit to bring to your attention when you need it most. Man, that hit hard. Um, Can you say that again? Yeah. When scripture is stored in your mind, it is available for the Holy Spirit to bring to your attention when you need it the most. Yeah. I have always been awful at memorizing scripture. John 3.16 and the KJV is the only thing that I have memorized, besides Jesus wept. <laughs> yeah, and it was kind of a wake-up call, because that is, that is really good, especially for a long time I thought like anything that bad that happened, it was the devil attacking me, and anything good that happens, it's, it's God using it. And so I, I still think that the good is true, because nothing totally good memorize scripture, how can you be expected, how can the Holy Spirit expect you to bring things to your mind that you need to be thinking of? Go ahead. No, I'm just... No, I... Oh, okay. Yeah, no. Um, I thought you were going to ask me to go off of that a little bit. No, not really. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. Well, then, okay, if it comes back, then you can raise your hand and interrupt me, because that's okay. I have... Two things from chapter two. Oh, hey. Yeah. Anyways. Um, one of the things, and I, maybe this is just me, but I guess I didn't necessarily consider, or like I hadn't really thought about um, hearing God's word as a spiritual discipline. Mm -hmm. Like that didn't really, like I, my mind did not make that connection until I read this because, you know, it just, it feels like something that you can just do without like disciplining yourself to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, like sitting in church to me did not feel like it.
I think like the way that he explained, you know, it's not that they don't have social time, but like they actually take time that is set aside for them to like pray and refocus their heart before they hear scripture, which they consider a spiritual discipline. That I was like, we just don't do that. Like we roll into church late all the time and like don't care. And I don't know. So I think that like, you know, being on time for church should be something that we consider a spiritual discipline, so long as it depends on you. But just being disciplined enough to make that a priority to be like, yes, I am here. I am here in enough time to focus my heart and to actually listen with a little bit of a like, I was like, oh, that's, that's nice. Did that's you, cute. Did your thought come back? Yeah, I got it. Okay. <laughs> so I was just going to say, um, a lot of times when I have read scripture, later on when something comes up that's related to that, I think of that. Not that I necessarily have it memorized, but just imagine what it will do for you if you do have it memorized. Instead of having to go to Google like, oh, what's that verse in John that says something about this? If it's actually in your head, you're going to be like, it's yeah. going to affect you a lot more. So I would encourage everybody to memorize more because I am the worst of everyone here. <laughs> this is chapter 2, 3-ish. Okay, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> but kind of going off of what you were saying, um, we talked about how memorization Sometimes we're just really bad at the exact wording, but even if you're like not good at it, one, the more you memorize, the better you're going to get. But two, just having those like concepts in your heart can come up all the time, and um, that they often force you to actually meditate on the, the passages. That's why I need to memorize it so that I can force myself to like actually think about it for a longer period of time. What's actually what can I take from this? And it's a really meditating on it and just reciting it or memorizing it, whether it's in the form of getting a dollar at Sunday school because they told me to memorize it and I thought it was my motivation or whatever. But over the they years... Talk about that, Mark. Mm, Sunday school. Over the years, I learned that Christians are actually really called to be public speakers. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, Matthew talks about how we're supposed to shout from rooftops. So, now you can take that literally or not, that's up to you. Uh, but still, I think the message is you have to be a good speaker because the word speaks. The word speaks in and of itself. God created by speaking. We are created in his image. We are Christians. We are Christ spoke the word, spoke to hundreds of crowds, thousands of people all the time. Public speaking is not, not just something that's a gift natural to people. For Christians, it's an essential 
And so even if you're stumbling over your words like I just did, there's no, why be afraid? What can man do to the flesh? Like, better your, better, like, you just stumble in public or be, like, naked in front of a hundred people than for your whole soul to be cast in hell because you weren't confessing the word of God in front of a bunch of people. And so, like, my encouragement to you guys is, yeah, you're going to stumble over your words just like everybody else mm -hmm. in this room. You may not be a teacher, but we are called to share the word of God publicly. And we're called to be able to exhort it. And it doesn't take much to just read the word. And as you read more of it, you hunger for it. And the intake just truly becomes a desire over time. And there were times and days that I just started reading all of Hebrews in just over and over and over again and then I started reading it out loud and it was beautiful and you can get those journaling Bibles which are great to just have around you all the time and just start saying stuff out loud as you're going through you're already going to be reading a chapter a day or whatever it is you guys are doing even if it's just a verse a day read it out loud once or twice and it just really does help not only for the stick in you but also to get you comfortable with speaking out loud uh, so the the part um, where he mentions when Jesus was baptized in the wilderness, it says he paired it with the sword of the Spirit. It was the Spirit prompt recollection of specific texts of Scripture that helped Jesus experience victory. And it made me remember the lectures video of last summer mm -hmm. and just how he was saying humanity's downfall, Adam and Eve's sin, is literally because they failed to remember Scripture. Because Scripture are the words of God, and God told them where what to eat and then when Satan talks to Eve he's like no that's not what that's not what God said you got that totally wrong and he's like wait what if she knew okay. what God said she would have been like no I remember so I just that always I was like I got shocked by that so uh, so just remembering like he, he used to remember that like, Jesus knew scripture and that's how he he gave us an example Last one, and then we're gonna go go to chapter four. Awesome. Okay, so I was gonna join off of what Aiden said talking about memorizing scripture. Um, so specifically, this is like out of the ones that we've read so far, the one that I struggle with the most because I have a really, really horrible memory. <laughs> Literally, cannot remember anything. And um, Caleb will know this, but we're taking like a biblical counseling class, and. It's just so crucial to like giving people good biblical counseling and just in witnessing overall and it's just so important and I don't think I've ever realized how important it is to know like the Bible and to be able to quote it like just off of your head like that. So that's something that just really spoke to me out of the book. Very good. Prayer. Y'all think of this chapter? Don't be prayer pessimist. Don't be prayer pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you mean? Explain. It was on chapter page eighty-two. Uh, we can be prayer pessimists and see the expectation to pray merely as obligation, or we can be optimists to view the command to pray as an opportunity to receive the mercy and grace of God. So don't be like stretching along, like, oh man, I didn't pray today. Oh, I should do that. As like more of like you get to. Uh, within George Miller's book on 90, um, last, last uh, 
Lord, not for the sake of preaching on what I have meditated upon, but for the sake of obtaining truth for my own soul. Um, especially as I try to balance like school and teaching here and stuff, it's it's usually a press for time between my own devotions right here that we talked about this at nauseum uh, cold. And so not that I it's not like I don't try to apply myself what I teach to you guys, but it is to say that one of my main motivators when I come to the Word often is like, oh, i got to get ready so that whatever I say is ready for my friends and family that I'm going to teach to. And it's fine, it's not bad, mm-hmm. but I think the more involved you get in ministry, the more involved you get in ministry, the busier you get, the less it often becomes about your own food and just being like, oh, I actually really need nourishment mm-hmm. and go to the Word of God and be satisfied from it. And so I felt pretty... Uh, when I was talking, it was in the section about like unanswered prayers mm-hmm. or just answered prayers how your prayers will be honored and answered but there might be reasons why they aren't being answered at that current time mm-hmm. and one of the main things that stuck out with me, or to me that I hadn't really thought about too much for was like you need to examine the motivations behind your prayer and whether that motivation is a correct motivation or a selfish motivation and that kind of stuff. Um, just thinking about like my experience a lot of like uh, how is God answering this? How do I hear God? I don't really always get the well God told me vibes, you know? In, in the right ways and I, it's a lot of it because I just don't know to hear them, or when I do, through an answered prayer, through, um, you know, this person comes alongside me because God brought them into my life, or whatever it is, I completely forget it. Mm-hmm. So, when I get discouraged about prayer, it's like, well, it's kind of hard to be encouraged if I forget every time God does actually answer it. So, that was an application thing, where it's, I was thinking that I need to write down specifically what my prayer requests are, and then check in with that list, and see, like, or not yet answered, or how has my prayer changed? Um, because, yeah, it's just hard to know how God answers prayer, or see that and be encouraged if you don't ever remember it, or record it, or get reminded of that. Um, one thing for me was like the lack of prayer is so bad for the church in general. Um, just because of like how many situations have you been in you talk to somebody at church it's like hey I'm going through this right now oh, I'm so sorry I hope that gets better instead of the proper response is like hey can we just pray for you right now like how much a life of prayer like with prayer being on your mind so much that would so much help especially with other people because a lot of times we expect it like the book said can't give you I have a Kindle <laughs> it's a different page number anyways but it's like we expect prayer not to work yeah 
So on an application point, and this is something I was taught years ago, and I'm sort of applying to now. Um, so that's just me confessing that. Uh, <laughs> so I was, it was a very wise person who once said at a retreat, and we were praying the whole day, that when you find yourself saying, and this is what I took away from this, not verbatim what they said, um, they're here today, it's Joanna. Um, <laughs> so, uh, whenever you come across a time and you're talking to somebody like Robbie said, and you have the encouragement, you have the urge to say, I'm praying for you. I was very much convicted by this chapter and very much reminded of that day with Joanna. Uh, you need to stop right there and change that to a statement of, can I pray with you right now? Because that's whether or not you remember in the, the future will not matter because in that moment, in that five minutes, 10 seconds, whatever you have with that person, you're praying with them, you're doing that, you're fulfilling what you were about to say of, oh, I'm praying for you, it's like, no, can I pray with you right now? You do it right there and it becomes a great action point and a great way to deepen relationships whether you know the person well or not. I prayed with two lesbians at Chick-fil-A one time and it had an immense impact on my time there just because they knew who I was. Now, obviously, they're still lesbians, so it wasn't like I had an immense impact on their <laughs> but you get the picture. It's like, there's so much that it does for your reputation for the sake of the name of Christ when you just stop saying, oh, I'm going to do this. You're not actually going to do it. Scratch that. I'm not actually going to do it. I'm going to point fingers at myself. Uh, but when you just change it to, hey, can I pray with you right now? Jeremy? I'm going to try and like kind of take everything from the first four chapters and tie it up with a nice little bow. That's what I'm trying to do here. But um, so on the fourth box on our handout that says, how are the ideas discussed related to one another? And this is kind of like what I noticed as a consistent theme throughout these chapters um, is essentially the idea of meditation. And I know that he only talked about that in a couple places, but mm -hmm. the reason that I yeah. say that is because I think well, okay, let me, let me start with this. Growing up, um, a, there was a lot of emphasis, hello Ethan, there was a lot of emphasis put on what a lot of people called the discipline of listening. And I don't know if anybody else experienced this, but it was a lot of like, you know, take time to just listen and try and be as absolutely quiet as possible yeah. 
almost like in an effort to audibly hear God say something, essentially. And it's not that everyone was always trying to be like that, but it's like just listen and see if something is like imprinted on your heart. Like you know, it's almost a little bit mystic when you think about it, mm -hmm. but like there was a lot of focus on that of like shut up and be quiet. Like you pray and then there's time for listening and you like stop and be quiet. And I think like my outlook on that has changed so much in the last several years because it's like, you know, your your form of listening is reading scripture. Like he has already spoken, you know, use that as your intake. But I think that he, Donald Whitney did a really good job of trying to explain like, you know, he didn't really talk a lot about listening in the pure sense of shutting up and saying nothing, but just in the sense of actually meditating. And I yeah. think that he did both with Bible intake and with prayer there was a lot of emphasis on actual just meditation on it, like, and just being continuously having your mind saturated in those things. Like, one of the things that he said about um, Bible intake was in order to, well, he said, like, to, to linger with it, mm -hmm. essentially. In order to do that, you have to keep coming back to it. And so, you know, hearing it, reading it, that's exposure, but meditation is how you actually absorb that. And then, you know, he mm -hmm. went into all the different ways that you can meditate and absorb. But you know, then the continuous prayer. And so I feel like what he's really trying to get at through all of this is like, you know, yes, these are, he's breaking down the individual disciplines, but like, this is a way of life. Like this mm -hmm. is how all of this stuff should be integrated into one thing. And so, you know, though you're separating it out in order to get diff like get better in all these different areas, after a little while, they should really beautifully blend together to where you are just constantly meditating on the Lord and on scripture. It's kind of like the goal of almost of like where we're trying to get to. Yeah. I think it's kind of funny. Last one and then. Just the last. The last thing I was going to talk about was a little bit about prayer. Um, yeah. So a lot of times people say they're bad at prayer because they don't have a lot of time. But there are other people who say that like prayer just like takes you in. You're like talking to the sovereign God. Good stuff. Um, after we're done with tonight, I encourage you all to keep talking to one another about this because I think there was some more ideas out there that may not have got touched. But okay. Better to leave people wanting than to have too much, right? Um, if you want to pull up Oh How Good It Is by the Gettys, uh, we'll be singing that tomorrow at LifePoint. And so I went through all the songs that... We will be singing tomorrow at LifePoint and uh, pick the one that I wanted to do a little bit more detailed uh, look through. Jared Hill brought up a really nice point from his church down in none other than Greenville, South Carolina. And yeah, I, Jared Hill would like you to come if you've never heard that. Um, but, they, but they do a nice job of just before they sing, they read one of the songs. And I wanted to take a little bit of time to unpack the song because 
what's most one of the most impactful things for me uh, when we're worshiping is that I'm moved by the concept and the idea behind the lyrics, and it's that immersion in the theology behind it that really wells up the worship in my heart. So if you have, uh, you know, if you have pulled up the lyrics, I'm going to sort of read the lyrics, and the Gettys do an awesome job of tying in scripture to it. Yes, ma'am. Oh, How Good It Is uh, by the Gettys. I'm also going to just call out a couple of verses throughout. We didn't create stickies. Um, I think we can have a little sword drill here. Um, oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit, in faith, and unity. This is a call back to the Psalms uh, very, very directly. Psalm chapter 33, if you want to flip there. Psalm chapter 33 says this. 133, I apologize. 133, my bad. Got my own reference from. I've already lost in a sword drill. Um, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the color of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life, forevermore. On the surface level, this is probably the simplest text that you're going to come across, right? I mean, it, the meaning is right in the first words. Oh, how good it is uh, when the brothers dwell in unity. That surface level is that, yeah, it's, it's great when people are united and one in the people of God. But as you look at this psalm a little bit on a deeper level, this idea of uh, having enough land to dwell in unity is a phrase that's back in Genesis chapter 13 and Genesis chapter 36. What happens back there? Well, we have two different separate stories where the land is not able to support both Abraham and Lot, for instance. Like, oh, we got to go our separate ways because the land does not have enough for the both of us. And so this psalm is likely speaking of the people of God being able to dwell together in one place with plenty. And there's a couple similes that the psalmist uses or comparisons to illustrate this point. The first one is Aaron and the anointing oil. Like whenever I've read the psalm in the past, I'm like, oh, the first verse makes sense. And then verse two and three, I'm like, what is he talking about? Um, Aaron and the anointing oil. So this goes back to the Exodus where the priest is anointed with oil so that he might be ordained to the service of God. And then he says that it reaches down to his collars, which is to say that it's an abundant amount of oil. If someone pours enough oil on your head for it to reach down to the color of your shirt, that's a lot of oil, okay? The second illustration is Mount Hermon and the dew. And this, this is the tallest peak in Israel, and all the snow that's on the top of it sort of trickles down all the way to Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And this water gives life to the vegetation and to the plants in that area. And so what we see, these two illustrations, is that unity is a display of our true consecration or our ordination in the service of God. When we are united as brothers, this is our display that we're actually serious about the purpose that God has called us to in the world. And then secondly, unity is an outpouring of nourishment. It provides a fertile environment for the people of God, where we spiritually live and where we spiritually eat. It's like, well, let, let me let me call out the opposite. When there isn't unity, when there's a lack of unity in the church, notice how spiritually dry and deserted it becomes. 
All right, and what the psalmist is saying is that unity not only shows the genuineness of our ordination in the service of God, it also shows and develops a place where spiritual life is present. Second uh, stanza in the song, where the bonds of peace, of acceptance and love are the fruit of his presence here among us. This is a call to Ephesians 4, 2 through 3. If you were here last summer, somebody mentioned last summer with Beal. You take the Psalms and he said, okay, we have the people of Israel. This is a Psalm of ascents. But I ask you, who are or who is true Israel? Who is the holy priesthood? And you must answer that question that we as the church, true Christians, are a priesthood. We are a holy priesthood, Peter says, set apart to the service of God. We are the people of God where this unity is supposed to dwell. And so Ephesians 4, this is this passage where it's like one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We, as true Israel, should be the demonstration of the genuine unity that we have as priests. And so this unity transferred over to the church should be even stronger as the Spirit moves among us. It should show our consecration in service to God, and then it should foster that environment of the Spirit produces fruit. This is the idea of a fertile vegetation, a fertile environment for spiritual growth as the Spirit permeates the body. So what can we learn from Ephesians 4 as we look at it a little bit deeper? God is reconstituting true Israel by the power of the Spirit for a people that have direct access to the Father, that's what it means to be a priest, and a light to the nations. Israel was always supposed to be that light, but they were disunified by their idolatry, right? You had some, a few remnant, and this remnant that was faithful to God, and then you had so many that were idolatrous in the church. We are united with one another and united with Christ. And so Paul goes on to apply this. Unity is going to look like humility. It's going to look like gentleness. It's going to look like patience, love, and that is going to be the evidence that we've been made one by the Spirit and that we are indeed the eschatological or the end time temple of God. Stanza three. So we sing with one voice, we'll sing to the Lord, uh, with one heart we'll live out his word, till the whole earth sees that the Redeemer has come, for he dwells in the presence of his people. Uh, someone uh, pick up Romans 15, five through six. The Gettys do a really, really nice job here of stitching Ephesians 4, which has this one, one, one theme through it. Uh, Caleb, do you have the verses out here saying? Mm-hmm. Okay, one second. And they combine it over with Romans 15, which picks up the same type of oneness language, Romans 15, 5 through 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father, This unified position by the Spirit results in two things. It results in two main things. First, we have a unified testimony on our lips. And this is the one voice that it's talking about. As a church, when we affirm the true gospel, we're in the community, we have one voice. We are speaking the same message about Christ. We have a unified testimony in the world. Does that mean we agree on everything? No. Does that mean we agree on central, primary issues and have a unified front for the world? Absolutely. But if you just have that unified voice 
and you lack the rest of what Paul says about having a unified testimony of heart, uh, a unified desire which flows into your actions. If you don't have the true affections of what it means to be a Christian, then the words of your lips, the proclamation of your mouth, not only becomes meaningless, but it becomes hypocritical, which I would suggest is even worse than, uh, than just being unified on the lips. It is, it is so much worse to have a front of a verbal affirmation of the truth and yet to not live out that unified belief. And so we see this two-faceted bit in Paul where we have a unified testimony on our lips and yet also a unified heart, a unified desire, and that flows into unified action. Now, Romans 15, they pick this one voice idea up, and they snatch it out of Romans there, but that is the perfect segue to, for, the, for the next words in the song that says, till the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come, for he dwells in the presence of his people. What is Romans 15 going on about? It is saying that we have, well, we have two groups of people, right? We have those who are cool with eating meat offered to idols, and those who are saying, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, that's idolatry. And Paul is there to say that Christ didn't serve himself, right? Christ did not come to earth to serve himself, so don't worry about serving yourself either. And he goes into the stronger and the weaker brothers. But where he goes is he says that the Spirit is granting us this harmony so that we do have the ability to have a unified testimony to the God, to our God and to Christ in a lost and dying world. And so Paul ends it, verse 7, on a very, very simple little phrase, be welcoming, right? Therefore, Christ has welcomed you, so be welcoming to people. And so if we're going to have this unified presence in the world, you might disagree with somebody on some secondary issues, but we must be welcoming to those who are weaker in the faith. You don't cast judgment and really poke fun at those who are weaker in the faith, and the weaker in the faith do not judge the stronger in the faith. Oh, how good it is on this journey we share to rejoice with the happy and weep with those who mourn. This is a quote from Romans 12:15. I didn't even have it read because I was like, we pretty much all know at least a paraphrase of this verse. Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Paul in Romans 12 is saying, let love be genuine. That is the starting phrase of that whole section. And then he basically unpacks, what does it mean for love to be genuine? What does it mean for love to be real? And one of the things that he goes right into almost immediately is saying, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. In other words, be there, listen, care for people. When someone is happy, genuinely rejoice with them. When someone is sad or down, Paul didn't ask you to offer your opinion if you think it's a dumb thing to be sad about, right? There are things that people are excited about and very, very uh, depressed about, and you're sitting there thinking, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why is this such a big deal to you? Won't you just get over it already? But you know what they don't need to hear right in that moment? is that it's the dumbest thing ever from you. What they need you to do is to obey the scripture and to rejoice with them and to weep with them. Now, is there a time later that you may come back and say, hey, uh, let's reprioritize and let's focus on the main thing? Yes, absolutely. But how do you gain a position in their life where you're able to say, let's reprioritize? Well, you emotionally relate with them. You are there for them in their difficult times. Whether it's high or whether it's low, it is real to them in their journey. 
and that's uh, unfortunately sometimes very subjective but it is a high and it is a low and so be there for them on their journey next stanza for the weak find strength the afflicted find grace when we offer the blessing of belonging and the most close parallel in scripture is second corinthians 12 where paul is saying i'm you know this is my weakness i besought the lord three times take this away from me but i found that his grace is more than enough what i'd like to say is that you guys are going to encounter the weak you guys are going to encounter the afflicted god most often and i would say in the final analysis always will do that transformative work of taking someone from weakness to strength and affliction to grace that's going to happen within the family of god and so first what i want to offer is that do you guys even notice the weak do you guys even notice the afflicted person in your local assembly Whitney is right in saying that oftentimes we just come to church, there's a hubbub, and I actually push back on this a little bit in our group, but one of the things that he's very right about is that we don't have any perceptive ability when we come together. We just gloss right over it, we talk to the same people we always talk to, and we never really pause to see somebody who is genuinely having trouble. And I promise you guys, if you are willing to open your eyes, if you're willing to open your ears, and what that means is ask one minorly probing question, for most people, you can see how they are hurting in a very, very short amount of time. Second, if you do notice, do you work to include them in something like this, in a friend group, in a conversation? Uh, you say, oh, our friend group's open. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe you're not trying to exclusively avoid somebody, but are you actively working to include them in your life, in your heart, and in your friend group, or are you putting all the onus of burden on them? Somebody who is already weak, already struggling, are you putting all of that burden to say, you put in the effort to make it into our friend group, and then we'll be able to have a real relationship with you? That's hardly being welcoming to the weak and the afflicted. It, most people who are in one of those very dark and depressed places need someone to come alongside them and guide them into opening up and to trusting people again because they've probably been hurt and hurt pretty deeply. Third, and this is on the positive side, do you acknowledge the grace of God and let them up? You might run into one of those people and they're weak when you first meet them, but they transform over time and praise God for that. But it is really, really frustrating when you work your butt off, but people only remember you for who you were six months ago, a year ago, three years ago. One of the quickest ways to push people away from a group is to only remember them for who they were and not recognize that God actually is a redeeming God who changes people. Why? Because you don't want to have that shadow living over you forever. That's why people feel like, man, I just got to hit the reset button and I got to start fresh somewhere because these people haven't seen that God is changing me and they always treat me like the person I was. And so recognize, okay, this person's weak, this person's afflicted. Recognize that God actually does grow people and they might actually become more advanced than you in an area 
and that whole disciple disciple thing might flip at some point and you got to be comfortable with that and you got to let them up church history note one of my favorite things is uh, that it is very possible that Onesimus the slave who ran away actually you know and stole and did all this he actually probably became one of the elders in the churches once that baton was handed off to the second generation that's really cool and that's what the christian family is about right they recognized yeah this is a slave who ran away who probably did a lot of bad stuff a lot of embezzlement all that and yet he became an elder in the local assembly and i want to say it was maybe even ephesus double check me on that uh, second to last stanza. Oh, how good it is to embrace his command to prefer one another, forgiving as he forgives. This harkens to Romans 12:10, And you say, where is that preferring one another phrase? Well, it's our lovely authorized King James Version where they get this phrase from. But the idea as carried on is... Uh, honoring one another, I think is how the ESV translate it. And, it. and it basically starts saying, Psalm 133, oh, how good it is. And then they take it to Romans and say, preferring one another or honoring one another. And then they also have that forgiving component. I would, I would suggest to you that preferring is preventative and forgiving is restorative. Okay, preferring is preventative, forgiving is restorative honoring each other and being more concerned about their well-being more than your own, unity is probably going to happen in a situation where that's occurring, right? If you are honoring someone and saying, hey, you know what, I've really just seen Donovan, he's, he's been working at this, let's, let's recognize that, yeah, this man's been putting in some work and he's been improving in da-da-da-da-da-da areas, right? That, that's not why we work, but it is really nice sometimes to hear, wow, yeah, okay, okay, they're, they're recognizing, they're honoring the work that I've been putting in. Most often, tension and disunity, I would say, comes when people uh, feel that their needs are disregarded or that they are being glossed over and glossed over and taken advantage of, and I pour all this effort in and nobody ever sees it. Is that a right motivation? No. But is it is it helpful sometimes for somebody to say, hey, I see you, I see what you've been doing, that is going to prevent a lot of disunity. But do mistakes happen? Do we unintentionally not recognize people that probably should be recognized? Yeah, all the time. Do we make, uh, do we make mistakes? Do we have sins? Of course we do. And so forgiving is restorative. Are you willing to genuinely let go and genuinely move forward in the relationship? I know I've hammered on this time and time again. I think Christians are notorious for saying, oh, I forgive him, I forgive him, but I just don't think the relationship is ever going to be the same again. You know, man, I think we do more lying to ourselves just so that we can feel comfortable that we're obeying than we actually do forgiving, right? We play some human word games just so we feel comfortable with ourselves and can live with ourselves that the Father is forgiving us as we forgive other people, and I don't know if we are always the best at that. Finally, um, when we live as one, we all share in the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. I'd encourage you to flip over to John 7, uh, yes, John 17. I picked out a couple, pa- a couple of verses from this passage, but it's just such an impactful section. We know this is the high priestly prayer of Christ, not only on the behalf of his apostles right there in that time, but he also prays for you and I. And if you've ever wanted Jesus Christ to pray for you, This is it, right here, his high priestly prayer. 
verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we, God the Father, God the Son, are one. And then verses 21 through 26, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me before, uh, I'm sorry, because you loved me, before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made them to know your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Trinity is the ground at the most fundamental level from which we can derive love within the body of Christ. I would metaphysically state that God cannot be love. God is love, right? That famous verse. God is love only if there are multiple persons within the Trinity, right? You can say you're loving till you're blue in the face, but if you don't have anyone to love, then do you have any object for you to love? And so what we see in scripture is that this inner Trinitarian love affair is always happening and it has always happened for eternity past present and into eternity future. And so not only are they ontologically one, one in being, one in essence, three in person, one in essence, but they are also relationally one in love. Now some people will take this into some very sketchy grounds in terms of how they formulate the Trinity, but I think I think there is room to understand both. They are one in essence, but they're also one relationally, right? They love each other in such a pure sense that they can say that they are one. But that's not just for the Trinity, right? And that's what's mind-boggling is Christians can share in the relational oneness of the Trinity. Do I know exactly what that means? No, I don't. Because that's pretty unfathomable, right? Christ is inviting us somehow as we unite with the person of Christ to enter into sharing in this Trinitarian love. I cannot, I mean, I've taken my shot at it in some places, but I cannot fully explain to you what that means. But Jesus is inviting us to be one, united with him like he is with the Father. So as Christians, we're quick to affirm the theological truth that there is a oneness between the Father and the Son. But what if we were actionably just as quick to affirm the church's oneness in our life? right? If you're an Orthodox Christian, you're affirming confidently that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. But the doctrines of church unity, particularly in Reformed circles, get like the very second tier treatment. Do we actionably affirm that we share in oneness with everyone else in this room because of our relationship with Christ and enjoying that inner Trinitarian love. 
what are the results of that? In this passage, joy, right? If you are sharing in the Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and Spirit, what are you going to have? Joy. What else are you going to have? God's glory on display. God's love is one of his most magnanimously glorifying qualities, and that is going to be on display through his people. Third, the witness to the world around us. How are they going to know that we are his disciples? What does Christ say? By the love that you have for one another. And even on a more trivial, like present point, one of the things that this group has been commented on as they see us hang out and they see us interact at LifePoint is that we love each other. That is the feedback that I've gotten. And that is precisely the reason why I love to go out to eat after Koinonia and why I love to have group outings in the public sphere. Do we sometimes border on absolutely ignorant behavior in public? Yes, we do. But what people do notice is that we're different. We're hugging. We're enjoying each other's presence in a very real sense. So here's our call to worship boiled down into a statement. Strive for unity, right? As you approach the service tomorrow, uh, you know, we have that whole like show up in a minivan and we're yelling at each other and then you step out of the car and it's perfect, right? Um, Strive for unity as you come into church tomorrow. The verse that came to my mind, I memorized this in Fasantos, is if you have something against your brother, leave there first your gift before the altar, go be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift I'm not saying I would rather you not come to church tomorrow, but what I would rather say is that, oh, I don't know, we've probably got 12, 15 hours before you guys are going to church. If you have something against somebody, do your best to remedy that in the next 12 to 15 hours before you get there. So some questions to ponder. Are you ready to open your heart to carrying the emotional burdens of other people as you enter into the fellowship tomorrow? And then conversely, are you ready to open up to share your emotions with other people and allow them the blessing of carrying your burdens? Are you actively going to be welcoming to those around you, particularly the people that you see are like hopping from group to group to group and they just stand there and you realize, yeah, that person's not engaging. Well, first, Learn to see that, right? That's important. You have to be able to see that. But when you see that person that's just floating around and doesn't have anyone to talk to and really just isn't very good, cool and they don't have good social skills, go make conversation with them and invite them into your life and friend group. Are you going out of your way to prevent disunity by serving others? Are you kind to everyone? And I, I think this is fair to say. It's that old phrase, everyone is dealing with something. And I think that's true for the majority of people in this room. Are you being kind to everyone? Are you forgiving grievances, genuinely forgiving grievances in order to restore unity on a more theological side? Are you living up to being the Israel of God? Are you living up to being the eschatological temple of God? Are you acting like a true Israelite? And chiefly, are you loving like you have been made one with Christ, who is perfectly one with our Heavenly Father. I, I just, I don't see any more fundamental place than we can go. That is our absolute core identity is that, hey, you're one with Christ, you're a new creation, and that new creation is a living stone in the temple of God. So as we go into tomorrow, don't let any disunity linger between the, here and there. And then as you 
Uh, this is one of my personal favorite habits. Maybe it won't mean anything to you, and maybe it'll give you some information as to why I look like a dork during worship. But I love to turn around, and I love, I've loved this since high school. Those of you who were with me in high school know I did this. I love when everyone is singing together to turn around and look over the entire crowd, right? Let that well up into just the spring of love for people that you don't even know. And let it also remind you that you, you might not be a big group person, but heaven's going to be a big group, right? Every tribe, every nation is going to be there singing. 144,000, symbolically meaning the complete number of everyone who God intends to be there. And so I hope that tomorrow, whether it's a small worship service or life point and large, that you are moved with unity and love for everyone that you are seeing around you there tomorrow. Um, would anyone be willing to close us in prayer on our first book discussion of the week? Yeah, She's got to do it. She did make it. I'm going to start volunteering people. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this your second week? All right, then, yeah, it's not your first week. Right yep. If it's not your first week, I would have given you a pass on your first week, but it's your second week. <laughs> yeah. Um, God, thank you uh, for this time that we get to come together. Um, yeah, and learn more about you uh, and just celebrate who you are, God. Thank you. Um, yeah, for how you made each and every one of us, God. May we go out and use our gifts, be more disciplined um, in scripture memory and reading and listening and meditating on your word, Father God, because you gave it to us for a purpose, God. Um, yeah. Amen. 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 Simple, easy to remember. <laughs>